our interaction today, you may have some memory of me. I'm channeling the spirit of those I've read and I've interacted with before. You're doing the same. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. interact, we refine the ideas, propagating through our flesh, through our eyes, through our ears, through our mouth. And those ideas compete, recombine, reform, reproduce, and then we die. And then maybe if our ideas stood the test of the free market, we'll become the shoulders of giants on which future generations stand. What's going on, my fellow Bitcoiners? I'm John Cheneau, and welcome to episode 17 of the Bitcoin Path podcast. This is a show where we have deeper conversations about Bitcoin and self-sovereignty, about how this new magic internet money is changing the world and changing ourselves at the same time. In this episode, I'm really excited to share my conversation with Robert Breedlove. Robert is an author and an entrepreneur who has made incredible contributions to the Bitcoin community through his writings and eloquent discussion of many deeper philosophical implications of Bitcoin. In this talk, we cover a lot of ground between what his daily routine looks like, as well as the social and religious transition that Bitcoin is enacting in the world today. Uh, it might sound pretty intense, but... Uh, yeah, I encourage you to listen in and see sort of uh, sort of where we take it. Be sure to follow Robert on Twitter at Breedlove22 and find more of his writings on his Medium page, breedlove22.medium.com. Also, you can support his effort towards his new book that's entitled Time, Money, Soul on his Patreon. And I'll put a link to his Patreon page in the show notes. I really enjoyed this conversation with Robert. I hope you do as well. And as always, if you want to support the show, be sure to like, subscribe, and share it with anyone that you think might be interested in it and might resonate with the message. And visit thebitcoinpath.com to learn more about uh, events and other ways to contribute as well. So with that, let's get into this episode. Robert, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Good to have you. Um, just as I know, I mentioned this previously, but uh, I just want to, you know, reemphasize that your writings have really inspired me to like dive a lot deeper into Bitcoin and recognize that uh, it really has more um, more teeth or more the more more potentiality for to affect change on society and and on the individual in it and on myself than i gave initial credence to mm -hmm. um just by you know getting the introduction to it and getting a taste of the number go up technology and wanting wanting to understand it more from that point from that standpoint and wanting to just like get rich and and to secure my own wealth and and um and also you know focus on the freedom libertarian aspect of things but uh your writings really helped me to think through a lot of the even the ethical and moral implications of things as well so um yeah man it's an honor to have you on and uh hope hope you're well thank you yeah man i'm glad to be here and thank you for having me um I love to hear that actually I that's what energizes me these you know the feedback I get from the market 
um, I had this, you know, fantasy, I guess, years ago, or vision for myself that I was going to be this super private, wealthy hedge fund manager type finance guy. And now my life has taken me in a completely alternative direction of being very much in the public sphere, talking about Bitcoin, yeah. uh, exploring its deeper implications. And, you know, I'm just, uh, Bitcoin, I think, teaches humility in a lot of ways. And there's that old saying, like, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, not to use a trigger word for a lot of people, but God has definitely shown me that and been laughing heartily for a few years now. So I feel like I've learned to be a student of the market, first and foremost, not to try to force fit an outcome. And this is what the market is signaling to me. Um, my writing has been well-received. My, my speaking engagements have been well-received. I stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, you know, Saifedean's work, New Song, exploring the moral implications, Quidam, exploring biological implications and principles, Gigi going deep in the philosophy and physics aspects. Uh, I could go on and on, you know, Svetsky, Vallis, all these guys. So, um, yeah, I feel like I found my life's work and I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Well, we're happy to have you like, uh, yeah, one of the things that I love about the the community and I know it's something we touched on briefly as well is that like Bitcoin seems like this thing that enables people to be completely themselves in, in a very, uh, in a very authentic and in a very powerful and potent way that's like able to um, encourage others to, to be themselves and to, to work on, to follow their passion and to follow the, uh, the value that they see in the world. Um, and so kind of with that, uh, I know you, well, one, so one question that I'd love to get out of the way that, um, a buddy of mine brought up is, as I was mentioning to him that I was talking to you, uh, later this week and, um, he was wondering like, what, what does a day look like for you? Um, you're kind of at, at this point in your career where, like you said, it's somewhat surprising where you're at, uh. And, you know, we all have various indicators of success or, or, a, or like judge, judgments of success for ourselves. And some might see that as like a, managing a large organization. Some might see that as like contributing some sort of uh, intellectual uh, uh, knowledge base to humanity. So what it, what is a daily life like for you right now? And what's that like? Yeah, I, it's, despite my best efforts to structure it well, I think it definitely has a lot of variability to it. Um, but it's interesting, that question of like, what is success to you? What does it look like for you? I actually, this was back in end of 2016, I had ascended to kind of a high-level position with the firm. I was the CFO. We were doing an international acquisition. I had an opportunity. The CEO departed. There was an interim CEO, and I had an opportunity to kind of fill the gap after the interim CEO left. And for me at the time, I was young. I was 31, I guess. 
So 3031 was just a huge opportunity to be, to shift into a CEO position. I would have had a board seat, you know, international public listed company, blah, blah, blah. It was very exciting on paper, Hmm. but I actually decided, like did some soul searching and decided that's not the life that I wanted because it's a lot of politics. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of management of people. Um, and I kept finding myself drawn into the ideological sphere. So my, my ideal activity is, you know, if I have nothing to do, I'm reading a book every, all the time. Anytime I can, can read, I'm reading. I've got a Kindle and I've got tons of physical books. And this is what I enjoy. I don't know why it's, it's a habit I ingrained in myself at a young age. I think my mom actually had a lot to do with it. She was very, um, supportive of education like self-education being a wellspring in life you know of of not only knowledge but even a tool to recalibrate yourself to evolve yourself um so at this at that transition point i had that offer to go you know be this big shot corporate executive i actually went to hawaii by myself for a week and I was just kind of, I'd already decided that I wasn't going to take the role. I was instead going to move to Los Angeles and just start a company. I had no idea really what I was going to do. I had one consulting client at the time. It was like consulting CFO work. And I was just going to throw the dice, so to speak, like just figure it out. And when I went to Hawaii, one of the things that came to me was pretty much asking that exact question. Like, how, what is success to you? What does it look like to you? And so the question that I posed to myself was, if money was absolutely no issue, how would you spend each and every day down to the hour? What would you do each and every day? What would be your, it's not a rigid structure, but it's just a framework that you would, like your average day, which you would want it to look like. Mm -hmm. And I decided, you get 24 hours, I'm going to sleep for eight. So it leaves me with 16 hours. I would spend three hours working this is just on whatever project i you know find interesting or i am engaged with at the time um you know making a living ideally i would spend three hours playing this could be a video game this could be i don't play video games anymore but just for instance uh could be playing with my kids i didn't have kids at the time i do have a daughter now probably a lot more of that uh could just be playing a sport, you know, just play, right? Just, just open-ended fun kind of thing. Mental or physical could be either one. could be board games. I would spend three hours a day reading. So that's literature. You know, I've got a backlog of literature uh, longer than I care to talk about. I would just be chopping away at that three hours a day. Mm-hmm. And then I would spend three hours a day being physically active. So that's fitness, hiking, whatever, surfing, swimming, whatever it may be. And that would leave you with four hours a day of just flex time, just free time to do whatever you want. And, um, and that was it. That was the general guideline I decided I was going to work towards. I knew I couldn't do that. It's not like I could just jump into that. You know, the work is clearly a much larger portion of the day. Even today, it's still way larger. It's, you know, it's full time basically. Um, And the other piece of that was I wanted to be able to make a living from wherever I am living because 
the other component to that executive role was I had to be in a certain city and I had, I had to be between two cities. Basically it was Vegas and Vancouver. Uh, and I didn't want to structure my life that way. I wanted to embrace the digital age. I wanted to be this, you know, digital nomad or have this ability to, to earn a living from wherever I am living essentially. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's funny how, like, once you, I think this is in the book, The Alchemist, that once you decide to go a specific direction for the right reasons, the whole universe conspires in your favor to make it happen. Something like that. Yeah. And it's, that was the end of 2016. This hobbyist investment I was doing on the side, crypto, just went bananas in 2017. And uh, I've, you know, tumbled down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and I've been in the business ever since, you know, I have been, uh, running a distributed company and now, um, always been a lifelong reader. Bitcoin's given me the impetus to start writing. So now I've, I've actually sort of shifted my focus again in 2020 away from the, like the hedge fund business I was in and more towards Bitcoin education. Um, and now, you know, the, the latest, uh, effort I'm making is this, the, what is money show? Um, which is sort of a podcast slash YouTube channel. I'm going to, it's amazing because I get to talk to, again, doing one of those things I would do if money were no issue, I would just do it anyways. Like I get to satisfy my own intellectual curiosity, sitting down with some of the smartest people in the world, talking at length about history, philosophy, money, economics, uh, you know, first principle explorations of any topic under the sun, more or less. Um, And and it, yeah, it's amazing. So it's been uh, a very challenging road, road. I think I definitely took the, the path of more resistance when I chose not to take the cushy executive role. Um, unforeseen challenges. It's been it's been a hard few years, but things. You know, I feel stronger. I feel better. Um, you know, pain as as Taleb would say, pain and information are the same thing. Right, so kind of subject yourself to these entrepreneurial experiences. Your skin is fully in the game, and you're learning like through the fire hose because there's a lot of pain coming through that experience. And today, I feel stronger and better and sharper, and um, I would attribute a lot of it to interacting with Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin has helped me, I guess, see myself in a more vivid light or higher resolution, so that I could see my weaknesses and see where. I was flawed and um, try to overcome some of those things. So hmm. my a day in the life today is not the split that I laid out. It's more like eight hours of work. Uh, <laughs> but fortunately, I love the work. Right. Um, typically up in the morning, very early, 5 or 6 a.m. Try to do a little morning ritual. I don't have any calls or work, you know, time obligations, which will usually consist of meditation, gratitude journal, prayer, workout. Um, then I'll kind of settle in, take a shower, settle in for a day of work. And then, um, you know, have lunch with my daughter, my girlfriend, and have dinner, daughter, girlfriend. Maybe we do a little something that night. We either watch a show together or we just play or we go, to, go out to eat, whatever it may be. Um, and that's it. Get to bed early. With my Kindle, do it all over again the next day. So, yeah, that sounds that sounds great. I uh, 
I think one thing that I was thinking about while you're talking was how there is in the predominant um, narrative when it comes to career and success in the legacy like fiat system, so to speak, um, tends to be like going to college and getting a solid job and working your way up into in a large into that sort of position, right? Where you're you are um, managing a larger organization and you're you know making your contribution in that way. Um, but I, what I was thinking about was uh, uh, something that you talk a lot about is ideation, right? And how the individual entrepreneur is able to look around him and find, or her, and find problems in society and solve them in a, in a real tangible way and provide value for society in that way, right? When you have so many people who are tied into a career track that is very like top down and structured, I, it, it's almost like that's a, it's a draining force on the spirit of society and, and these, the spirit of exploration, the spirit of problem, problem solving. Uh, so that's just getting this image of like all of this massive lost potential uh, yeah. occurring as a result of this. And I, I know it's just one aspect of, of, of this stuff, but uh yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a great observation. And what is, Jordan Peterson said something like, uh, get your own house in order before you condemn the rest of the world, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I, did, I think what we're seeing today really is that these institutions, the, the very nature of socioeconomic structure itself that was well fit to the industrial age of large scale production, um, you know, large projects. Like we're, we're, we spent a lot of the 20th century turning the earth into stuff, right? Whether it's buildings, factories, equipment, we're just cranking out capital basically. Yeah. And uh, that, this, this accumulation of capital stock got us into this digital age right now we've, we've now sort of crossed the chasm from industry being the main component of economic activity to increasingly it's it's data it's information it's hmm. knowledge work and with that uh transition really came the advent of bitcoin and um now it's like we've discovered this new substance almost that it's defunding and dematerializing a lot of the functions that those analog institutions provided, right? If you just zero in on the central bank, that really originally was just intended to be uh, a custodian for money, right? And it's evolved into this role of managing, you know, established a monopoly, so it manages a monetary policy, it facilitates value flows internationally and domestically, and then it reconciles account balances. There's a huge workforce associated with that. There's a huge workforce that follows the governors of central banks. Like it's a giant right. uh, smart contract, if you will, with human beings on top of it. Instead of instead of using software, we're using a lot of human labor. Uh, the Federal Reserve alone is 20,000 employees. Um, so in the digital age, we've now replaced this analog institution that was necessary and important 
with something like Bitcoin. That's just zero. Yeah. You know, people, it's just everyone operating their own best interests creates this decentralized digital organization that is orders of magnitude more efficient uh, than the central bank and just basically renders it obsolete. So I think that's what's happening is that we've now shifted into this digital age. And I would say that March, 2020 will probably be regarded historically as the real watershed moment. Um, There have been a lot of them, but this is the moment where all of the tech and the infrastructure is here. The call we're having right now, uh, this realization just dawned on broader society that you can do a lot of this work from anywhere, right? We, we have all the tools necessary to interact remotely. Uh, as Sailor says, we can bend time and space to these technologies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what the economy is all about is bending time and space, right? We're trying to accomplish greater results with less effort, We're trying to improve our productivity. And now it's as if we just really crossed the chasm from the industrial age full on into the digital age. And, um, that gets us into to sovereignism a bit. It's like, what does the world look like when every market actor realizes they can store their wealth in this ultimate offshore bank, if you will, called Bitcoin, right? right. Can't be confiscated, can't be inflated, can't be traced if you have good OPSEC. Um, it's this totally ungovernable territory almost. As market actors realize they can store their capital there, it's actually, they face huge disincentives if they don't. It's almost like they're being, there's a hydraulic pressure pushing them into Bitcoin. People don't realize this yet, but it's, it's happening. When that happens, all of a sudden, the revenue model of the nation state, which was the predominant organizational model of the 20th century, its revenue model goes to zero, right? Taxation and inflation drop precipitously uh, and approach something like near zero, um, you know, they'll be grasping all the way down. So they'll be, I think, imposing heavier property taxes. Like real estate can't be concealed or hidden. So I would expect property taxes to go up a lot. Sales taxes, right? They can still manage commerce in their jurisdiction. Yeah. But the long Especially, story. I just like given the fact that the, their main source of income isn't even taxation, it's money printing. It, it's a, fact that they have access right. to free uh new debt uh, right. and that's it was about 50 50 in 2020 so they printed okay. 4.1 trillion direct tax revenues just looking at the u.s u.s government was 3.9 trillion so it was about 50 50 but to your point it's the monopolization of the money that enables them to impose the tax rates that they impose they're not consensually negotiated rates you and i don't ever sit down with the irs and say hey I don't like right. this service agreement. Like what I'm paying you is not worth what I'm getting from you. We don't have an alternative, right? But yeah. so the, getting into this individual thesis is like, we will have a seat at that table. There will be an opportunity to negotiate an independent tax treaty and say, you have the option now to leave. So when you have the option to leave, it forces the service provider to be more honest. Um, which is just, it's a radical new world. We don't know, we don't know what those institutions will look like, but everything that we know today <laughs> is on the cusp of irrelevance. And that's why it's so hard to understand. It's like, what does the world look like now? We have, we have no idea. Right. 
yeah so thinking in terms of uh like you said to I, I i do really appreciate jordan peterson i i'm a huge fan and a follower as as you have uh self-proclaimed as well um and focus i really like his focus on the individual and saying like if you want to change the world you know start with yourself start cleaning clean your room right um and i've thought i've done a ton of self-reflection over the last year just looking at looking at the outside world and seeing all these things change so quickly um kind of having this inside peak almost being connected and plugged into the bitcoin to bitcoin land you have this almost a preview of what's happening and what's going to come um and then self-reflecting on like what do i how do I navigate this and, and what's, what's the optimal path? Um, and I've, and I've thought about that in terms of, uh, career wise, like you're, you have these, like these jobs that are paying in a certain salary and fiat. Um, but like the, and it, it's like, there's, there is a part of me that is like attracted to that, right. Where it's like, you're, there's a certain amount of stability that, that you can get if you just like commit a certain amount of time to this, to this yep. one company. Right. But then there's this also the outside of that lies this potentiality for unlimited upside. If you devote yourself to, um, to some way of uh, contributing to the Bitcoin network, but what that looks like for each individual is not, it's not clear. Um, so yeah. I've been got, kind of going through this process of trying to um, sort through what that actually looks like for me. Um, and I know like many other people are, are in this same space. Uh, so that, yeah, I don't know if there's a necessarily a question in there, but like moving into sovereignism, mm -hmm. like, yeah, we want to be so sovereigns. Like we're owning Bitcoin, we're custodying it, we are learning more about uh, like trying to understand it, trying to grok it and, and then help other people into it um, and educate others. And then, uh, but, but then, and then we're just trying to survive, <laughs> you know, and have fun and, and enjoy, enjoy the ride, enjoy the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. It, may, it reminds me of, um, you know, it's safe inside the tyranny, hmm. right? The, the tyranny provides a lot of structure. There's a lot right. of certainty there, a lot of order there. That's the purpose, right? It's the purpose. It's the reason we assemble ourselves into hierarchies. Not just we, life assembles itself into hierarchies. Mm -hmm. It's a tool, right? It's a tool for, in theory, promoting competence, uh, over the span of an individual life and then actually promoting the reproduction of the most competent across the span of multiple lives. But the danger of the tyranny or, or the competence hierarchy, if you will, is that it has a tendency to ossify, right? Those that get in power seek to find ways to maintain that power and dispossess anyone that might uh, dethrone them potentially. And if we, that's the purpose of free speech, by the way, and free trade, 
is to make sure that that hierarchy is constantly refreshing itself and revivifying itself with the most competent, promoting the most competent, most profitable business models, the most uh, competitive and virtuous entrepreneurs. And if you start to break the mechanisms by which they promote themselves, which are free speech and truthful price signals, right? Disturbing the logos itself. This is a, this is the divine quality that many Muslim traditions point toward. Um, that hierarchy starts to become rigid, ossified, and tyrannical. So there's some we need something almost amphibious that has the the adaptivity of being just outside the hierarchy in the free and uh, you know the what does Rothbard call them the tempestuous seas of liberty, right? It's just total right. chaos out there. You're you're face to face with entropy. You don't have, it's just like being out in the wilderness where you've just got your little, hopefully a little tent and a little cooking pot and a few survival things. Like it's hard to live out there by yourself. It's much Mm -hmm. easier to live in a bubble of order like you and I are broadcasting through now, right? We have all these structures around us, right? The plumbing, the electricity, the police, the this, that. So it's, uh, it can be disorienting when you exit the, order or the tyranny of a hierarchy and move into this truly free and adaptive space. Um, And I think that's where a lot of digital age citizens are, right? They're on the cusp of this, of navigating this. How do you do this? And you see where the laws are rubbing up against digital first businesses and things don't make sense, right? So Mm-hmm. Tech companies are taking advantage of these legal loopholes, and sometimes, sometimes states are trying to strike back mm-hmm. and they impose antitrust laws on something like Google, or, or they're trying to regulate Bitcoin exchanges. Like it's just software is eating the world in real time, right? To quote Andreessen, and um, I don't think anyone really grasps the profundity of that statement yet. It's not like software is just eating all the businesses and now everyone has to be in the tech business. It's like software is devouring the nation state. This thing that we have our identity attached to the thing that we have our currency attached to thing that we have our military and territoriality attached to. So what, you know, where does the world go after that? Um, It's going to be, you know, 40 years lost in the proverbial desert. Um, but I guess yeah. the good news is Bitcoin is that, I think we could argue that Bitcoin is that amphibious hierarchy that mm-hmm. has a ton of order built into it, but also has tons of adaptivity. And it, it incentivizes self-responsibility, accountability. Um, it's almost like this purifying agent or elixir for the pathology of central banking, right? I would say central banking is a pathological hierarchy and Bitcoin is like this elixir that's just restoring free speech and restoring truthful price signals and then empowers us as a species to self-organize in the best ways, in the most productive and efficient, peaceful ways possible. Um, I'm rereading Human Action right now and, and Mises makes a great point. It's like the only way to establish peace, like everyone wants more territory, power, wealth, whatever you want to call it. The only way to make it a non-zero-sum game, to make it a positive-sum game, is through the division of labor, right? 
This is like the old Bastiat saying that if goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. We have to be creating more wealth and moving in a positive direction and have this interdependence of trade relationships. Otherwise, historically, mankind is just killing each other. That's not the case. So right. the light, yeah. there's a great light at the end of this tunnel, but the transition is just murky. Yeah, I 100% agree. One of the things that makes me think about is uh, the censorship issue of uh, cancel canceling and uh, how a large swath of the U.S. population is now all, all of a sudden feeling ostracized and not not being able to uh, communicate what what they uh, feel heard, right? And to yeah. me, that just shouts like a powder keg type situation where if if you cannot express, if you're like bottled up, then right you know you're bound to like lash out um right so it's you know a little concerning um i think that as long as we're uh yeah i mean we're not necessarily going to solve that problem here in this podcast but uh but but it that's the the this is i would connect this and there's still a lot of understanding to be meted out on this specifically you know it's common in bitcoiner circles to say fix the money fix the world Mm -hmm. sounds like a nice trope but i think there's a lot of real truth to that um we could consider the way i've come to view money actually is that it is the only vote that actually counts right you're making the whole economy is intended to coordinate human action towards the satisfaction of wants. And anytime you disturb that price mechanism, either through central banking or through legislation or force of any kind, any type of saying, you can't do that or I'm going to hurt you, you're going to do this instead. What you're doing is you're disturbing the free market's capacity to satisfy wants. So you're, you're, pulling away productive factors from one endeavor and arbitrarily allocating them to another. So you're leaving this, this gaping hole in the market. That's why I think people's voices aren't heard. It is connected to to the money. If we had free market money and people had this ability to express their views with their skin in the game through their money uh, in a way that couldn't be distorted, manipulated, confiscated, stopped, at a global scale, right? This this utility that Bitcoin represents, I think it actually exposes the entire concept of democracy for what it is. Democracy is a fucking scam, right? We have this illusion that we can go and vote for this guy, and by virtue of this popularity contest, he's going to perfectly absorb my nuanced views and allocate them into the world the way I see yeah. fit. Uh, it is it, it's just once again an antiquated model for human organization. And it it is, I would argue, designed to give the illusion of control, right? We still, you you turn on your local news channel and we're talking about protecting our democracy and how it's, Mm -hmm. we're bringing democracy to the world. So we constantly go and bomb people around the world too. Like, oh, we're taking democracy to, like, that's bullshit. The only true democracy is the free market. And we've never had, true unhampered free market money 
And so Bitcoin is the ultimate tool of true democracy the world's ever had. Um, and hopefully in 30, 50 years, 100 years, however long it takes, those people feeling marginalized and disenfranchised today, they won't feel that way, right? They'll have a way to express their views in the marketplace and, and get their wants satisfied without government interference. Yeah, I, I think that that's what, you know, we're, we're here for, we're working towards it. And it really is there already for, for anyone who wants to be a part of it. Right. Like I, I've been amazed at the, uh, a year ago, I was the only Bitcoiner that I knew. And I was very new. <laughs> I was like very new to it. Uh, this we're coming up on like marches when, I was at this point last year, I was like reading the big, I had read the Bitcoin standard and I was like, okay, I, I see the value in this. This is, this is really great. And then once all the COVID nonsense started happening, I was like, oh shit, it's all like happening yeah. way too fast. Like, yeah. and, uh, and so I just started diving in as, as fast as possible. Um, realizing that, time was of the essence that I needed to understand this more and more. Um, and I got to the point where I was able to connect with a few Bitcoiners on a trip back to California. Um, you know, I had met up with some of the OC Bitcoin guys with Brian, Brian nice. Harrington and, um, and Jason and George. Uh, I know and apparently you guys, you were hanging out with them for a little bit. Yeah. yeah. We were down two, there right? for a while. Yeah. But I've been, been gone for, few months now. Right, right. Um, but that just, it was mind blowing having meeting people in person and kind of uh, collaborating and just going from uh, this sole uh, isolated exploration of the space to a collaborative uh, exploration of, of new ideas and, and things that can happen. And so that that's just given me like so much hope for uh for like for the future knowing that so many bitcoiners are actually are like we have this asset yes to store our value and and we're being optimizing our own sovereignty and and taking responsibility for our own actions then we're also like able to collaborate with other people who are doing the same thing um and that to me is really, really hopeful. Um, and so I've really tried to focus on that, uh, especially I'm here in Miami now. And so I just started a meetup, uh, Bitcoiner meetup in downtown, downtown Miami and like 20 people are showing up each time. And it's just amazing to see, to have like, have people come and show interest and then like, all the all the shit coiners start to show up too and yeah. uh, get you know it's it's a it's chaos but it's pretty fun <laughs> monitor fish like to swim with the sharks right yeah yeah bottom feeders yeah. <laughs> um no so uh, yeah i'd love to get some of your thoughts of like maybe your experience in, in with the the social so-called social layer of bitcoin kind of maybe some vision on how you see that playing out. Um, I'm sure that probably con contributes to your sovereignism uh, yeah. 
ideas as well. Yeah. Um, first, for me, I'm so grateful for Bitcoin. Or I guess you can say the Bitcoin community under that. Because I honestly felt in my, throughout my entire life, I think a lot of Bitcoiners report this, felt like a bit of an outsider. There were always parts yeah. of me that I couldn't fully turn on in every situation. Like, um, you know, work in certain, I remember one particular job I had, um, I was a CFO of a specialty construction business and we had a large union labor force. And the incentives actually associated with this union are that the state, I'm not, I think it was the state, would issue a tax incentive to the union for recruiting ex-convicts. So they were, okay. talk about bottom feeding, like they were actually incentivizing this union to onboard ex-convicts. I mean, you know, you can't get much lower than that. Um, so yeah. these guys... Just riding, you know, I'm not against motorcycles, but they all rode motorcycles. They're all tatted up. They're all drunk and high all the time. It's just a mess, right? But you, we, in our business, you were required due to this union labor monopoly. You had to draw labor from this union pool. We're paying these guys like $100 an hour. It's a crazy amount of money. They show up just wasted out of their mind, walking in circles, some of them. It's just, it was a total... Total shit show, I guess, to say the least. Um, yeah. And I'll never remember, like, or never forget being the voice of reason in that industry, or trying to be, I guess, um, as a CFO of that company. And we had, you know, at peak times, we'd have a thousand man workforce. So, are you still there? Okay. Sorry. Thought I had some latency. Um, yeah. At peak times, we have a thousand man workforce. It's not like I was out in the field with the labor necessarily, but just working in that industry. I would like the way I would write emails or the way I would talk or the way people would always think I was um, trying to be condescending. They're like, you're using big words and being condescending to me. I'm like, well, I'm just trying to communicate with you. So it was, Mm -hmm. that was just one example where I never felt like I could just fully engage myself, just like be totally on and just activate all of the faculties and not have to worry about like hurting someone's feelings or, you know, making someone feel uh, condescension or any of that. Mm-hmm. And Bitcoin just gave me that. It gave me this community where I just discovered all of these people that are like, I feel like I found my family, you know, they're mm-hmm. everyone is an adversarial thinker. Everyone is a bookworm. Everyone is, um, entrepreneurial you know it's it's just been wonderful frankly and now i just feel so energized and activated um by virtue of being in this community for a few years and i'm just just thrilled about it um yeah as far as how it plays out join join the cult (laughs) (laughs) the only yeah i don't know yeah, I guess the cult based on math and critical thinking and uh, don't trust verify. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. the ultimate cult, cult right? 100%. Um, I think 
the other fascinating to me in regards to the social that's happening now is just seeing, as you said earlier, how fast it's all happening, right? COVID was this huge watershed moment where, you know, Bitcoin got annihilated in the short run, but the aftershock of it, you see that like Michael Saylor came out of nowhere, right? We've all, Bitcoiners have been writing and talking about this future that's actively playing out now for years uh, in the face of untold amounts of ridicule. I mean, I got this, I have one tattoo, I have a Bitcoin tattoo on my right arm. I got it in November of 18 when Bitcoin was around $4,000. And like my friends and family thought I was off my rocker. They're like, what are you talking about, man? This is never going to work. This you've gone too far. Like Mm -hmm. stop writing and talking about Bitcoin, do something else. Like get a, you know, you're living in this future that will never happen pretty much. And here we are. Two years later, two years, two months later, and yeah, it's like just radical how fast the Bitcoin, you know, I don't want to say the mind, right? But just the idea, the idea of Bitcoin gets into you, right? And once you once someone sees a little bit of Bitcoin or once they've got one foot in the rabbit hole, it's an event horizon, right? That gravity is inescapable no one becomes less bullish over time. The closer you get to Bitcoin, the more bullish you become. And the louder that voice, so true. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. Um, yeah. And so to see that dynamic playing out at this public equity level, with a, with a guy like Michael Saylor, who is one of the greatest thinkers of our time, and let's face it, predisposed to understanding Bitcoin, right? He, he had every piece in place, I think, except economics and money, which he figured out in 2020. He took a real look at his pile of cash and said, what's the deal here? And that was the last. He understands network effects. He understands technology. He understands dematerialization. He understands macro, right? He just he got that last little piece that was specifically central banking, Austrian econ, monetary. Mm-hmm. And boom, all in, right? So he this acceleration now of new minds coming into the space, they're traversing the path already blazed by other Bitcoiners. So I think the, you can accelerate to the bottom of the rabbit hole more quickly now, thanks to the groundwork that's been laid by others. And then he takes the plunge and then 1.3 billion. And then what do we see? We see this game of musical chairs or this pissing contest, if you want to call it that, heating up. Tesla comes mm-hmm. in 1.5. Uh, that's not going to stop. It's not yeah. going to stop. With two mega political chess moves in, right at that level at least, and then if the micro strategy was the first corporate. There's going to be a Micronesia or some other nation state that will be the first uh, jurisdictional sovereign, and then it's gonna, the same game theory is going to escalate to that level. And um, yeah, I don't know. Once you come to see those dynamics that like this unstoppable vortex of incentives. You know, like what else, what else is there to do in the world except work on this thing? It is the most important, possibly the most important innovation ever. Right. We could one day consider the internet as the thing that made Bitcoin possible. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to explain this to, um, 
to a friend the other day to where, you know, it's like the internet provided that gateway of flow of information and, and then Bitcoin does that with value, mm -hmm. right? And what, you know, we can open up this whole other rabbit hole, but I know you've, you were interested in Lila by Robert Persig. And one of the things that he mentions that he talks about in that book is um, this concept of everything, pretty much most things in the world being value, yeah. right? Like, which is a, you know, it's kind of an abstract concept, but the world being, he said the world is primarily value. Um, and then it, kind it of- is value, like instead of cause and effect, it's in its value, right? Which, yeah, it's a very complicated idea. But. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm only halfway through, uh, yeah. so I'm still kind of like rocking it myself. But but the like, if you think about that, like, then we have this thing that lets us store and transmit value, almost perfect, almost perfectly, into the future and and across space and time. Uh, so like, I don't, it, like, does that, it, you know, it, it, my mind just goes to like e eternal life. Like, is that the, uh, is this basically a portal into the new, into a new realm where we are able to, uh, I don't know, build, build on a solid foundation and uh and like have an infinite potential potential yeah um, it is um that book is groundbreaking uh most people know the author persig for his first book zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance which i've also read and i enjoyed uh the first book found it interesting, but Leela, his second book, which no one's heard of for some reason, I, it's been around for like 20, 25 years. Um, I was fortunate this guy, Mike, uh, recommended it to me very highly. He's like, you're going to love this book. And uh, I read it and was just floored. Like, wow, this is something. It's a metaphysical theory of value or quality, I guess you would say. And I think his argument is that value is the primary substance of the universe. It's not atoms. It's not energy. It's value. <laughs> right. So then the question is like, what is value? And no school of thought better explains it than the Austrian school. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, first of all, it's subjective, right? You cannot... The, the concept of intrinsic value or inherent value is nonsensical. You cannot, and this is another way to think about it is we think goods, people always often say goods and services. There's truly only services. Anything, a tangible object, the value it represents to you is not the tangible object. It is right. the services that object renders to you in the course of your goal-directed action. Right. And that is necessarily subjective and contingent on your goals, right? What, 
what is your value hierarchy, right? What do you say is, is highest, second, third, fourth? How are you ranking things? That ranking determines how you see the universe, like how you see objects, how you see relationships. Um, and the other, you know, I recommended these three books together. I recommended Leela. I recommended Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson, which goes into the theological and Judeo-Christian understandings of this. Again, talking about morality and value is like the primary feature of reality. And then I recommended Human Action by uh, Mises, which is actually pronounced Mises, but I like to mispronounce his name and I can't stop. I so. never know what the proper yeah. one is. <laughs> recommended Human Action by him, which is the ultimate textbook on Austrian economics. And, that, you know, another way to maybe think about value is that, well, first I'll just say this, it's, it's related to consciousness very deeply. Value is a product of consciousness, or maybe consciousness is a product of value. We don't really know. Um, it is in consciousness, scientifically, right, in the rational domain, the objective domain, totally misunderstood. We have no idea what consciousness is. Science can't tell you anything about consciousness. Nothing. Hmm. Whatever you know about consciousness right now is as much as all of science knows. We have no clue what it is, how it originates. We know that the act of observation changes reality, which is very interesting. At a, at a um, subatomic level, maybe it's molecular level, the act of observing something, the photon necessary to observe actually changes the trajectory of, a, of an electron. So you can't, this is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can't accurately know the location and velocity of a electron simultaneously. The act of observation changes it. So there's this probabilistic relationship between the observed and the observer. The act of observation changes reality, which is really interesting. And value is linked to that. Value determines what we see, by the way, not just how we see it, but literally what we see. Um, right. What about this in Bitcoin is hope, the selective attention experiment, where psychologists uh, put together this group of people. They're passing basketballs back and forth. I think they're wearing different colored shirts, maybe. Yeah. And the experiment is asked the... Uh, the observers to record how many passes are occurring between the guys in the black shirt or whatever it was. Right. So like count how many times the basketball has passed between these people in these shirts. And it's a short video. You can watch it on YouTube. It's 20 seconds maybe. And you're counting and you're doing it. And in the middle of this experiment, a six foot tall guy in a gorilla suit walks into the middle of the frame of the video and like waves his hands for a few seconds and then walks out. And this experiment has been repeated multiple times. People had, they were assigned the goal of tracking the number of passes between uh, these basketball players. I think the numbers are like over, almost 70% of them don't even notice the gorilla walking into the middle of the frame and waving his arms. So it's, you're, right. it's not just changing how you see the world. It's changing literally what you see, whatever your values are whatever your goals are, determine actually what you perceive in the world. So it's another uh, angle on this relationship between observer and observed, how it actually changes the nature of reality. And, you know, 
Bitcoin, the other thing about Bitcoin in this respect is that it's the first technology, if you will, that makes human nature one of its core operating components. Right? We'd say that Bitcoin is protected by basically the mathematics of elliptic curve cryptography. Uh, it is protected by the energy expenditure into the mining network. And it's protected by Darwinian, the Darwinian pursuit of self-preservation, right? The game theory of Bitcoin mm-hmm. is what's driving everyone to bootstrap this network into existence. So it is, we are components of Bitcoin. We are the Bitcoin network. Like we are part of it. And that to me points back to this reflexivity where it's changing people, right? Because you're, of course it's changing people. You're part of the, right. you're, you are sound money now. Of course, it changes your character and changes your perceptions and changes your attitudes and uh, behavioral patterns and all of these things. Of course it does. How could it not? It incentivizes you to behave differently. Mm-hmm. The value determines both how you see the world and what you see in the world. Doesn't Bitcoin then affect your consciousness? Like we are, it's, they're, they're part and parcel. And this, then you get into like the religious rabbit hole of it all because religion and these uh, you know, mythological wisdom, wisdom traditions, they're all pointing to this, by the way. They're all saying it's the non-materialist view of reality. It's the, the, the moral domain is the primary domain of reality. Uh, Solzhenitsyn would say the line of good and evil runs down the, the center of every man's heart. So it's we are creating reality with our moral decisions. How we determine and select value in the world the hierarchy of values we each arrange for ourselves are creating the collective value structure of the world. So, yeah, I mean, that's some deep rabbit hole talk right there. It's endlessly fascinating. Yeah. And I just to, just to push it a little bit further. (laughs) What, um, so I have a, I have a lot of theological training um, having studied, uh, I studied at Moody Bible Institute for a while and, and got most of my master of divinity and, you know, spent 10 years of my life, just like going deep into the scripture and historical theology, all of that stuff. One of the concepts that's integral to the gospel or to, um, you know, evangelical Christianity is this idea of, um, redemption and resurrection redemption um and then the resurrection right mm. kind of well they're both two different two different themes but resurrection being the conquering of death um and this uh there's always an important like unification of the divine with with uh the creation where the where God man has man has fallen man is separated and uh, and is has corruption but through Christ is able to be redeemed and united and connected fully um, to God and and resurrected right so. Mm-hmm resurrected through death and so that death doesn't even have any power anymore yeah. um and something 
what something that uh, something you were saying reminded me of that where there was um, uh, it's kind of leaving me a little bit, but I guess there there's this the the integration between um, between the spiritual and or the the idealistic uh, and materialistic points right. of view, right? We're in uh, at a certain point, like there's like, can there be a just things are <laughs> what they are? So I okay. so, yeah, I know you're. We're kind of pressing on time. Yeah, well, so. well I'll, I'm going to pick up on that though. That um, sort of round this out. Mm -hmm. About some of what you said there. So another way to think. I'm very deeply fascinated, by the way, between this connection. I actually think that we have math for the objective domain of the universe. And then in human action, Mises essentially incepted a new science that he calls praxeology, which is the study of human action, the use of means and ends. Um, first principle, uh, a priori analysis of purposeful action. It's, it's subjective, but it's rooted in objective, um, indisputable principles, basically. So it's a really interesting domain. So I kind of think that those are the two sides to the coin of reality, right? We have math explaining things objectively. We have praxeology, at least for human reality, explaining things subjectively. So we have the objective and subjective mm -hmm. side of the coin. And another way to think about value in that sense, which is something, again, inherently subjective, cannot mathematize value. Its value is just what people want, right? So if you want something, you value it, basically. And if a lot of people want something and there's not enough of the thing, demand outstrips supply, the thing is by definition scarce and therefore has a market price. So the market price becomes an approximation for value. Right? It's an appraisal of the, the value men attach to it through action. And this is very closely connected to what I think it's kind of gets into the we're more than uh, each an individual organism. We're kind of a collective organism. Humanity is this socioeconomic organism, right? That actually is able to increase its total population size through the division of labor, right? The more productive we become, the more resources we're able to harness to increase the population of the earth. So we're acting as one collective organism in a way. Mm -hmm. And in that lens, you could say that the meaning of life, then the meaning of human life is people helping people, right? It's literally like when you do your thing that you're best at, trade that into the market. No one else in the world can do it as good as you. You'll get favors back in the form of money that you can then claim or commensurate favors from other other people providing their best service right that is the mm -hmm. free market thing where you give value and where you get value in return and in that way if you look through this look at us as a collective organism instead of an individual organism this to me points towards the afterlife of religion what is the afterlife it doesn't need to be some metaphysical domain that your little body sprouts wings and flies off to you what if it's just the imprints we leave on one another through this course of goal-directed action? 
and purpose-driven action with one another, right? Our interaction today, you may have some memory of me. I'm channeling the spirit of those I've read and I've interacted with before. You're doing the same. Mm -hmm. We Hmm. interact, we refine the ideas propagating through our flesh, through our eyes, through our ears, through our mouth. And those ideas compete, recombine, reform, reproduce, and then we die. And then maybe if our ideas stood the test of the free market, will become the shoulders of giants on which future generations stand. Right. So it's, it's like in the movie gladiator, what we do in life echoes in eternity, right? What if this is the secular view of the afterlife? You don't need. And to me, this can almost reconcile what Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris are always debating about. Peterson's like this, there's a real thing here. There's a real, you'd say the praxeological side of existence, whereas Sam Harris is purely for the mathematized side of existence. That everything is objective and uh, even consciousness itself. And so in that lens, I think Christ, we could consider, and Carl Jung actually uh, backed this, we think Christ is symbolic of the highest moral consciousness possible, right? He met betrayal, he met tyranny, uh, he met violence with passion and love and self-sacrifice ultimate hero you will and carl young who you know he's been very inspirational to jordan peterson in his psychology practice he would actually he actually said that setting a higher moral aim could serve as an adequate substitute for clinical therapy so if you're suffering if you're if you have anger problems, sadness, depression, fear, whatever ailment you suffer from psychologically, Carl Jung advocated for set your aim higher, do something bigger, right? Take on a larger moral responsibility. And all of this moral responsibility is encoded in, you know, I, it's encoded, I think, in many religions, but I know the Judeo-Christian best. It's encoded in the Bible, right? It tells you to do these things. Hmm. Um, you know, to, to the, the whole list of sins, they're selfish actions, right? Gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, lust, vengeance. Uh, I don't I maybe I missed one, but they're all selfish. They're all selfish actions. So instead of taking selfish, selfish actions, we take selfless actions. That's how we create the kingdom of heaven in the world. And that's how we enjoy the afterlife, right? That's how hmm. our reputation and our name and our actions live beyond our own life. I think. And I, the other thing, I've, this is really trippy too, is if you read something I'm doing right now is I'm rereading human action. As I mentioned, every time I come across the word market in the book, I try, I try to do it every time, but most every time I'll reread the sentence and replace the word market with God and just see how it reads. And mm. I've read some really interesting sentences, let me tell you. <laughs> when you go and check out Human mm. Action, anyone's listening to this, try it. If we think that the meaning of life is people helping people, people help people through free exchange. The form of free exchange is the market. So what if the market is the representation of God? Secular mm. representation of God. The, the, the nexus which connects the subjective domain of praxeology with the objective domain of mathematics or value equals price, right? And as long as we adhere to the principles of the free market, libertarian principles, 
we create the kingdom of heaven in the world. Hmm. Maybe I'm totally nuts, but this is what, what I'm thinking about. I, I, uh, I like the way we were going. I like where we're going with this. I think this, man, this definitely gives me a lot to talk to uh, think about, Robert. And it's honestly like really encouraging. This is just, I'm getting fired up. Awesome. You know, listening to you and, and, and talking to you and, and, you know, thinking about just like, yeah, like if, if that's the case, then why not? Like, find what what i have like to offer to people and you know and and then see what connects like and it's 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 a scary process but um, i think that that's process a lot of us are in right now so it's encouraging man it reminds me of this i'll just paraphrase it it's like one of the greatest things you can do in life is discover your gifts and then an even greater thing you can do is to share that gift with the world. Hmm. Uh, how beautiful would our world be if we could all, if we're all free to do that. You know, free of force, free of, coercion, free of coercion, and just free to create in accordance with our own God-given innate talents, abilities, wits. I think that'd be a beautiful world. I agree. I agree. Robert, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on. This was just an amazing conversation. I'm really excited to share it with people. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, I think it'll be, it'll be great. Awesome. <laughs> I just went super deep as uh, as usual, but yeah. awesome. I, lo- I really appreciate you having me. I love these. I feel free in this forum to just talk about things I'm thinking about. You know, I, this is the first yeah. time I've talked about it. I'm thinking about it and reading it and doing all these things up here, but it feels mm-hmm. good to provide it. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Robert. I really appreciate his openness just to share his thought process and explore new ideas in this space. It really awesome to just be a part of that. Again, be sure to follow him on Twitter at breedlove22 and Find more of his writings on his Medium page at breedlove22.medium.com. You can also support his efforts toward his new book, Time, Money, Soul, on his Patreon page. And you can find the link to that in the show notes. If you'd like to connect, feel free to email me at info at thebitcoinpath.com. And I also host a bi-weekly Bitcoiner meetup here in Miami. So if you are in the area, uh, I'd love to meet you there. Until next time, may you live a meaningful life and enjoy your freedom as a sovereign individual.